0: We are approaching a very unhappy anniversary, the anniversary of uh, a terrifying and deeply troubling event that now is really known sort of by shorthand as January 6th. And any of us who were alive on January 6th, 2021, know what unfolded, the horrifying scene that unfolded uh, uh, in our nation's capital. A very powerful and important book about that day, in a sense what led up to it, and important lessons that one can only hope have been learned from that, uh, is is a book titled Domestic Darkness, an Insider's Account of the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism. The book, published by Ig Publishing, is written by Julie Farnham, who at the time of that incident was... uh, the uh, director or assistant director of intelligence for the Capitol Police. And uh, in this book, she talks about the way in which uh, she was concerned about what might unfold on January 6th and issued warnings that uh, at least to some extent were either ignored or not properly taken into account. And, of course, the consequences of that uh, were were horrifyingly apparent to all of us who watched that scene uh, unfold uh, as we watched on on television the book is also about uh, her life and work that led up into her uh, interest in intelligence work the book talks about uh, mistakes made including some by herself and uh, and includes uh, an account of, a, a surprisingly honest and frank account of of uh, of a relationship she established with someone who Ultimately, she believes betrayed her and our country in, uh, in divulging uh, certain sensitive information about ongoing investigations related to this. So a story that's already quite complex becomes even more so uh, because Julie Farnham uh, is, is choosing to be completely honest and also thorough uh, in her uh, account of what unfolded on January 6th. The book, again, is Domestic Darkness, An Insider's Account of the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism. And Julie Farnham, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What prompted you to want to write this book? And as you sat down to do it, uh, how much did you weigh the various possibilities in terms of how forthright to be, how candid to be, uh, how how far-reaching to be in, in, in telling this story?
1: I wanted to write the book because I was concerned about what I was hearing about January 6th and how the narrative of January 6th was being shaped by people who were not telling the truth and were not being completely honest and forthright about what happened that day. So that's really what prompted me to write the book. And I think for me, I I wanted to make sure that my voice was heard in this story because a lot of things have been said about me, a lot of things have been said about the Capitol Police. And I don't think anyone was really telling the full story about what happened that day inside the Capitol Police, because ultimately the Capitol Police were the ones who were responsible for protecting the Capitol. And clearly they failed that day.
0: One of the things you talk about in your book is the work that you did for many, many years um for the US Citizenship and Immigration Services. And uh you were with them, I believe, for thirteen years, and ahead of that you had worked with immigrants in a number of of, of, of different respects. Talk first of all about that that latter piece, the the, the work that you did uh, with immigrants uh, actually before moving to washington, d c and assuming this post uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, and And how did you become interested in that in that kind of work? So
1: my uh, degree, my master's degree is in intercultural relations uh, from Leslie University. So I've always been very interested in different cultures, different people, and when I was in grad school, I had an internship at the International Rescue Committee helping in their immigration clinic, helping newly resettled refugees with their immigration work. And then I ended up getting a job with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in Boston. And that really afforded me the opportunity to see the American dream come alive. And it's always been very important to me to understand why people choose to come here and what makes this country great. And part of what makes this country great is the diversity of the people and the desire for people to come here. And not just that, but they have the opportunity to become what they want to become. And I've been to many, many naturalization ceremonies, and they're always moving. And so the transition to intelligence was actually quite easy. There's a lot of overlap between immigration and intelligence. So as I worked my way up through USCIS, And I was with DHS for a little over 15 years, most of that time with USCIS, but also a couple years with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So I saw both the enforcement side of things and the benefit side of things. Um, But with that, um, you know, there's a lot of fraud in immigration. And I had worked once I came down to Washington, D.C., I had worked on some pretty high profile cases, such as the Boston Marathon bombing case the San Bernardino terrorist attack, and some others. So I was already kind of ingrained in that intelligence culture and intelligence collection. And when a position opened up to oversee their intelligence watch at USCIS and also their intelligence um, branch that uh, did the classified vetting of immigration cases that had national security concerns, I was selected for that role, and that's how I kind of moved into the intelligence realm. Mm.
0: At one point in your book, I, I wish I had the quote right in front of me, but you, you essentially say something to the effect that you really don't need to go to school and get a degree in intelligence work or intelligence gathering. That there, in a sense, are, are, are other ways to uh, accumulate uh, the knowledge and develop the skills that can make you very, very good at this. Am I remembering that correctly? Do you say something to that effect in the book?
1: Yes. And actually, I talked about it um, with the January 6th Select Committee as well. I'm not sure if it was in the transcribed interview or interview that I had done separately from them as well. You just have to have a natural curiosity, I think, to be good at intelligence. There are skills. Anyone can learn new skills. And so, sure, with intelligence, there are places that you look, there's different systems you use. All of that can be learned. But the the thing that makes someone a good Intel analyst, I think is that natural curiosity and that desire to like dig and find information and to analyze the information and figure out like, well, what does it mean? And so that is something that I had and that I possessed and the skills to how to gather that information is something that I have learned. And I think I I was quite good at it.
0: You write at one point on its most basic level, intelligence often starts with a question. For example, is this person a terrorist? Um, I mean, I think most of us can understand the importance of a question like that. Uh, In the work that you were doing with uh, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, what sorts of questions would you be, in a sense, posing to yourself and and wanting to find the answers to uh, in your intelligence work?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the cases that I worked at USCIS were exactly that question. Like, is this person a terrorist? Has this person supported terrorist groups? I did a lot of work with foreign terrorist organizations, as you can imagine, because there were immigrants that were coming from often war war torn areas of the world. So we had to make sure, and we had to assess. You know, were they involved in some of the conflicts? And did they commit you know human rights violations? Things like that. So. Terrorism I did a lot with. um, I did a lot with trafficking, both human and drug trafficking, a lot of like transnational criminal organizations and gangs like MS-13, things like that, espionage, those sorts of types of cases. So the fundamental question was, you know, is this person a bad person, a bad actor? Did they support bad actors? And what was their involvement in the bad activity?
0: Hmm. So you say at one point about the position that you ultimately assumed with the Capitol Police, I did not want the job, but I desperately needed it. Explain the circumstances under which uh, you essentially lost your position with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, necessitating you uh, looking for for, for another job.
1: Yeah, uh, so USCIS is mostly self-funded, so they are funded not through appropriations and taxpayer money for the most part. They're funded by the fees they collect on the applications that people file, so your applications for green cards, naturalization, things like that. And in 2020, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so not many people were coming to the United States, and I was getting furloughed, as were many, many other people within USCIS, and I had received a furlough notice. Uh, I have two children, I have, you know, people who are dependent on me. I have a mortgage, like many of us, and I have bills to pay. And so I needed a job. So that's what prompted me to uh, start applying for other jobs. And then I ultimately got the job with the Capitol Police.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Julie Farnham, former assistant director of intelligence for the Capitol Police and the author of a very important uh, new book called Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism you tell us uh, in the book that at your job interview for this position with the capitol police you were told that the team you would inherit at the uscp would need a complete overhaul (laughs) i don't know if you were told that before or after you were offered the position but i should think uh those would not exactly be uh heartening words, uh, that's not the most encouraging way to to begin uh, a, a new position. Uh, what was behind those somewhat ominous words, the need for a complete overhaul uh, at the USCP, at least in terms of the intelligence team with which you were working? What was the problem there?
1: So the team was a relatively small team. I had 11 intelligence analysts. Most of them had never received any formal training, but maybe more than that, none of them seemed to have, or Not, I won't say any, there were, there were um, a few good people on the, on the team, but about half of them really didn't have the desire to learn the skills. So that, that, I think, is at the core. And then the team was very siloed. They didn't communicate with others within the Capitol Police. They didn't communicate with others within the intelligence community or the law enforcement community. And the work that they were producing was of very poor quality, and uh, that made it difficult for people to see the team and the products that they were producing as credible, because they had a reputation for not producing helpful information, not producing useful information. And so I think that was one of the contributing factors as to why the intelligence that we provided ahead of January 6th was not taken very seriously because the team had a really bad reputation.
0: In other words, they had a a a reputation for not doing good work. I mean, not yes. doing good intelligence work, not not effectively and so uh if 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 someone from that team with that reputation were to try to raise an alarm about something or other uh that would not necessarily be Taken seriously, or taken as seriously as uh, as a warning from a more credible uh, source.
1: Yeah, and if I could just add too, you know, they weren't really held accountable either, and that was that was an issue you know, with the Capitol Police when I got there. They had not been given like performance forms, so. They haven't been. They had not received any uh, written expectations of them in their role as intelligence analysts. They didn't have performance standards for them, which I did issue to them in December. Uh, you know, a couple months after I got there, they were pretty upset that this was the first time that they were being held accountable for their performance. And I offered them training and all of those things to get them to where they needed to be, and where they needed to be in line with other intelligence analysts in the federal government. Mm. So those like holding them, communicating what the expectations were and then holding them accountable is something that they had not experienced before in their time at the Capitol Police. And as my job as their supervisor, that was very important to make sure that I had something to measure their performance and then to make sure they got what they needed. And if they weren't going to be willing to step up and get the training and get the skills where they needed to be, to make sure that I took action so that they wouldn't be on the team anymore.
0: Right. You say at one point, pretty, pretty frankly, I ruffled feathers almost immediately. And I think what you've been describing, I'm sure, was a, a big, a big part of that. Uh, yes. As you explain what kind of the situation was uh, in that intelligence wing of the Capitol Police, you say one thing that especially intrigued me. You say my team had never been empowered to take initiative, and had not been taught how to do what was right. That is so interesting. I hope you. Yeah, I I would love you to kind of explain that particular state of affairs and why it was troubling to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it goes back to, like I mentioned, about them being very siloed. Um, The my predecessor at the Capitol Police, uh, he liked to have control over what was going on on the team, so he never empowered the team to go and do things that they needed to do to get the answers that they needed or to share information that they needed. There were a lot of things going on. Capitol Police is not subject to to the Freedom of Information Act. So they were very, um, very, they held on to information very tightly because they were always very concerned that information would be shared with other agencies within the executive branch and those other agencies would accidentally release Capitol Police information under FOIA. And so it created this, like, code of silence and secrecy. So information just was not shared. And so in that sense, you know, in the bigger picture, in that sense, that's why a lot of things were withheld and there was a culture of not sharing and cooperating with others. But broader than that is that, um, The team, the team just wasn't empowered. The way you learn is sometimes you make mistakes, but the way to do that is to give them opportunities where their mistakes are going to be learning, learning opportunities are, are not going to be catastrophic. And you do that incrementally. And that's, you know, basic leadership. And that never happened on the team. So, you know when i came on board in october 2020 it was a chaotic time we had supreme court justice confirmation hearings and we had the election and then we had the maga march in uh, november and then another one in december so we were in crisis mode from the time that i got on the ground and because they didn't have those skills and those skills hadn't been built or fostered in the team they weren't able to handle everything that was coming at them
0: we're speaking with julie farnham Uh, former assistant director of intelligence for the Capitol Police, about her new book, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right wing extremism. Before we go any further, I think it's important for us to uh, have you sketch for us kind of a summary of, of what the Capitol Police is. And I actually found this to be one of the most interesting parts of your book, and certainly one of the most illuminating parts of the book, because in in a number of different ways, the Capitol police is kind of an entity unto itself, and it's it's not exactly like anything else. I mean, kind of it's an interesting and intriguing amalgam of of, of a couple of 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 different models. Uh, describe for our listeners. First of all, basically kind of the size and scope of the Capitol Police, what they are charged with doing, and the ways in which this is not a, a standard police force or, or military unit or, 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 or whatever we might, might think of, uh, how it is in a sense of, of kind of a complicated mixture.
1: Yeah, so the Capitol Police is the only police force in the legislative branch in the United States. And so they are charged with protecting both the members of Congress, their staff, people on the Capitol complex, and then the Capitol complex itself, which encompasses more than just the Capitol building. You have the Capitol building, but then you have three Senate buildings, three House buildings, three library buildings, and um, a few other buildings like, you know, Capitol Police headquarters building. So at the time that I was there, there was around 1,800 officers, which is large for a police force, but not necessarily large for the scope of the mission of the Capitol Police, because um, the Capitol complex is quite large, and you know there are thousands of people who are on the complex any given day. Plus, you have members traveling around, um, and leadership members of Congress. Was discussed quite a bit when um, Representative Scalise was shot a few years ago, but leadership members, which is you know the WHIP, the majority leaders, the minority leaders, the Speaker of the House, so ten in total, they get protective details as well, and so Capitol Police is responsible for that. In a similar vein to what Secret Service does with the president and their protectees. So they have a complex mission. They are not, I would say, like a traditional police officer. Um, they're not dealing with, you know, violence acts for the most part. You know, they're not dealing with, like, domestic violence cases and murders and drug deals and things like, you know, what a regular street cop would deal with. It's much more centered around the protection of the building, the protection of the
0: members. Right. But it's interesting, at one point in your book you say, although it's 1,800 officers view themselves as street cops, they really aren't. In other words, you know, what, d- despite what you just said, I mean, that they really aren't street cops, at least many of them actually tend to look at themselves that way.
1: Yeah, I think so, and, I, and that's not a knock at the officers at all. I mean, they're wonderful, they're wonderful people. And uh, it's unfortunate what happened to them on January 6th. But their job, especially if they've never worked for another police force, is quite different than what most police officers experience in their career.
0: Mm-hmm. You began working uh, at the uh, with, with the U.S. Capitol uh, Police uh, nine days before the 2020 presidential election. And you have already talked about how that was a period uh, fraught with all kinds of 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 tensions and and challenges uh at that point in time as you first uh came on board uh what kind of intelligence information was coming in in terms of the uh, intentions of of white ring ex- extremists a- a- around the country what kinds of things were you seeing and hearing and by what means Was that information coming to you?
1: So, a lot of the information was coming to me through social media and what we were seeing on social media. I will say that when I started in October, there wasn't, uh, the team was not very focused on right wing extremism. Um, And I think I mentioned in the book too, they had written an intelligence assessment about the election and they focused pretty heavily on a left leaning group in D.C., which I found surprising because I knew right away that that was not necessarily the threat, And you know, not to knock my own skills or anything like that. But it was pretty obvious that there were some um, there were some challenges that the country was having and there was some indication that the election transition or the presidential transition would not go as smoothly as it had in previous elections. So for me to focus, to see a focus on left leaning groups That was a little bit misplaced, and I had to get up to speed pretty quickly on these right-leaning groups, and I will say more of that happened along with the first uh, MAGA march, which was November 14th of 2020, and that was really like a who's who in, like, the far-right circles, so you had, you know, Infowars people, you had some white supremacists, you had Proud Boys, you had went on like all of that in the mix. And so that was really like my introduction into like this is the world that I am going to be, you know, subsumed with over the next, you know, several months, several years. And that was really how I I started to get that, but a lot of it came from social media, which was also different than what I had experienced at DHS, at DHS open source intelligence, which is intelligence that is available publicly. That was not what I dealt with. I dealt mostly with classified information and PHS. So um, this was a different type of intelligence and I had to get up to speed quickly on it. Right. And I did.
0: One of the questions that I have, and I, I I hope this won't be misconstrued, but in some respects in this world we live in, in which so much of what we do and say and experience is uh, in, in the realm of, of social media and quite accessible, it, it, feels in some ways like the work of figuring out what these white right-wing extremist groups are doing, for instance, or intending to do, is maybe in some ways a simpler matter than it once was. If, if you know, 30 or 40 years ago, I mean, a group like that would be meeting in a room someplace, and the only possible way to know what they were thinking and planning to do would be to somehow be there eavesdrop or have a have someone undercover i mean on site but the fact that so much of this plays out uh, in social media which at least to some extent is is quite accessible uh means that there are all kinds of tools available uh to ascertain these kind of threats much more so than was once the case uh does that make this kind of work easier in a sense or or does it make it harder because of kind of the torrent of information, potential information that we're talking about?
1: I think it's both. I mean, I I see your point of like, it's online, so it should be easier to find. It depends on what you're looking for, right? Like before January 6th, certainly it should have been easier because it was just everywhere and everyone was talking about the same thing. There are challenges in figuring out like who's behind the keyboard. Um, Some people are better than others at disguising their identity online. The concern and the thing that I think makes it more challenging is that there is so much information and it's a lot easier to radicalize someone, right? If you're looking at, you know, what they're talking about and violent extremism, things like that, you can have someone sitting alone in their house and reading this and being inspired by this And them never telling anyone. And then they become the lone wolf who commits a violent act. And we've seen that. We saw that in Buffalo. We've seen that elsewhere. And I do think, you know, the threat in 2020 was more of these extremist groups. I think the threat has morphed a little bit. And the bigger threat now is radicalized lone wolves who are going to commit violent acts.
0: Mm. I appreciate how thorough your book is in talking about uh, these various groups and and in part because it is tempting and simpler to oversimplify the situation and to kind of make sweeping generalizations about these various uh, right-wing extremist groups when in fact they have intriguing distinctions between them in terms of what is most important to them and, uh, and maybe in terms of strategy and tactics and and, and so on. Uh, help us kind of understand that that landscape, this world of, of, of right-wing extremism and how varied a landscape it is and, and how important it is to be aware of those distinctions between various groups. So with the
1: groups, they have different ideologies and they're fighting for different things. I think what made January 6th unique is that you had these varying ideologies and people in these groups come together for a common cause, which was, you know, to keep uh, Trump in power. The reasons behind it, though, were different. There were some groups like the Oath Keepers that tended to be you know, more anti-government, militia-type groups. And then you had white supremacists and accelerationists that wanted to provoke a civil war or a collapse of society so that they could rebuild it as a, a white society, society and a society that um, mirrored the images that they wanted. And then you had QAnon that was really, um, you know, conspiracies about deep state and the government and what the government was doing behind door, closed doors. And then of course that, that wasn't true, but that was kind of their motivation to expose, you know, these government secrets that, that don't exist, but that's what their motivation was. So all of these groups had varying ideologies. They also attract different demographics. Um, you know, with white supremacists tending to attract younger white men, some of the militia groups tend to be older white men. And then QAnon, uh, had varying, uh, different people looking at them as well, or participating in their ideology. So it was interesting to see them all come together for kind of a common cause, albeit for different reasons, Hmm. for supporting that cause.
0: Right. I want to read a a paragraph from your book that takes us back to mid-November 2020, so this is shortly after uh, the results of of the election were finally uh, solidified once and for all, Uh, that Joe Biden had indeed defeated incumbent President uh, Donald Trump. You write, As expected, pro-Trump crowds gathered in Washington, D.C. on November 14th to claim that the election was being stolen from the president and them. That is, stolen from them. They vowed to take back their country. The question was, from whom? Was it Democrats, progressive women, people of color, Jewish people, the LGBTQ community, immigrants, gun haters, All of the above, whatever or whomever it was, something was threatening their existence, and Donald J. Trump was the only person they felt could act in their best interests. Fighting to keep him in office was the only solution that made sense to them. I think you've done a really, uh, really good job of describing what was kind of at the heart and soul of of these groups, uh, disparate though they may be, the way in which they came together and uh, what ultimately led to the events of of January 6th. What's it like to hear those words read? I mean, I wonder to what extent it takes you back to those really scary and challenging days in late 2020.
1: Yeah, it was hard to... The whole experience was a really difficult experience. I don't think I fully processed everything that was happening because I was in the middle of it. So, like, you can't see the forest through the trees. It wasn't until after, you know, a lot of this drama went through. And even now, I just left the Capitol Police in May of this year, of May 2023. So, like, really processing everything that happened. And I was saying to someone the other day, part of me just wants to, like, put January 6th behind me in that whole 2020, 21, and like never look back. Uh, but then I wrote a book about it. So I will be talking about it for a little bit longer. But it was a really, really challenging time. It was a challenging time for me personally. But it was a challenging time for this country. And I don't think that we are fully through the challenges that we have. And there are more challenges ahead of us.
0: Of course. So leading up to the events of January 6th, What were the really specific threats that you and your staff became aware of? And what was the nature of the warning that you issued?
1: So we had quite a bit of intelligence that indicated that things were not going to be good on January 6th, that there were people coming armed, that there were going to be extremist groups there, that they were going to target Congress. Um, In the book, beginning on page 141, I do list examples of the intelligence. There was almost... 70 pieces of raw intelligence that I sent forward to the Capitol Police leadership And that's in addition to the intelligence assessment that I wrote that is publicly available that says, you know, Congress will be targeted. And that has gotten a lot of attention. There was also a separate report that hasn't been released publicly that talks about social media postings that discuss the tunnels under the Capitol. And that information about tunnels under the Capitol, that's been available, you know, for years. It just got renewed interest, though, right before January 6th. Um, But some of the intelligence, for example, um, on January 5th, I sent up to Capitol Police leadership information about the Oath Keepers having a quick reaction force. And that was a group of Oath Keepers who were staying in a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, which is just, you know, borders Washington, D.C., and they were ready to enter the city should there be a civil war or a riot or what have you. Um, they were ready to react to that.
0: One question that comes up is why the warnings that you were sounding were not taken fully seriously. Uh Do you have any sense that any of that had to do with the fact that you are a woman?
1: I think some of it did, for sure. I had felt during my time at Capitol Police that my voice was not given as much weight as others, like particularly men. I think also I was a civilian. I wasn't a sworn officer, so I didn't have as much credibility in the eyes of some at the Capitol Police. And it's a hard field, like intelligence and law enforcement are male dominated they're male dominated industries. And so to have a woman come in and be like, No, you need to pay attention to this, that's not something they're accustomed to. And so whether it be an explicit or an implicit bias, I don't think I was given the credibility the credit that I was due because what I was saying was true and was happening and it wasn't taken seriously. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you greet the morning of January 6th? I mean, with what kind of dread or or did you have any reason to hope that uh all of this was uh you know just people expressing anger but who ultimately would not act upon that bitter anger and frustration? I mean, what what were your expectations for that day on that day?
1: For January 6th, part of me, and I've gotten this question or a similar question about like, well, why didn't you, you know, demand that people listen to you or why didn't you stomp your feet and tell them this was going to happen? And part of it was that I didn't have, I had only been there, you know, about two months and I had no reason to think that I couldn't trust the leadership of Capitol Police. They were, you know, the chief of police and and. I expected that they would listen to the people that they hired to provide intelligence to them. And so I had no reason to think that I would be ignored. And on that morning, it was a pretty chaotic morning. I came in, and as I was walking into the office, there was a group of Proud Boys across the street. And I I laughed a little bit because we had intelligence that said Proud Boys were to dress down, like they weren't supposed to wear their typical black and yellow gear that they usually wore. But there they were at 8 a.m., like all in their full Proud Boy gear. I was like, well, I guess they didn't get the memo. Um, but it was pretty crazy that morning anyway. So there wasn't a lot of time to dwell on what was going to happen, what wasn't going to happen. You know, I had done my piece. I had said my said what I needed to say. I put it in writing. I sent it up. I did briefings. I spoke to partners, and at that point, you know, it just was like the cards were going to fall the way the cards were going to fall, because I I had done what what I needed to do. And there were a lot of protests at members' houses that day in particular, so I was kind of like dealing with a lot of that before we really got into the chaos of the day.
0: Right. And I guess I'm understanding now for the first time that you, in a sense, were not maybe fully in a position to know with absolute certainty to what extent your your warnings were acted upon i mean ultimately those those were decisions made by others and maybe you weren't even completely privy to the extent to which they were going to act on or maybe to some extent disregard your warnings
1: yeah you're absolutely right like i was not in any of the operational planning meetings uh, intelligence always is just an advisory role. It's not operational. So it's supposed to be used to inform the operations, but it does not it does not dictate what the operations must be. And so I didn't know that the Capitol Police only had a one-and-a-half-page operational plan for January six until after it, and it came out in the media. Because I wasn't privy to those conversations, and I wasn't involved in any of the operational planning.
0: One of the things I think we learn in your book is that— uh... On the morning of January 6th, 923 out of the 1,840 officers were on duty. So roughly 50% of the Capitol Police was on duty the morning of January 6th, which would certainly suggest that uh, the warnings that you and others had issued had not been taken seriously. And uh, and even at the height of the insurrection itself, uh, they were at no, nowhere near close to full capacity uh so so it's it 's little wonder uh that the scene we all witnessed uh unfolded as as it did. You were not in the capitol building itself but in the capitol police building, which is very very close uh explain or describe uh the, the, the your sense of of vulnerability uh in terms of 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 what potentially might have happened to you. Uh, If if someone had uh, attempted to enter, for instance, your office.
1: Yeah, it was scary because I was watching, you know, in real time, everything that was happening just outside my building. The Capitol Police Headquarters building is right next to the Dirksen Senate office building. And it's uh, between there, the Dirksen and also Union Station which is, you know, a major hub in D.C. and also a metro station. So I could see, you know, people walking from the metro towards the Capitol. And so it was scary because our building is, it says, etched in stone right above it, the Capitol, United States Capitol Police. So I thought, you know, that could make the building a target. And um, fortunately, no one did try to get into the building, but it, it, it was it was a scary moment.
0: And, of course, further further making it scary was the fact that your children were on hand, I mean, either in that building or in the Capitol building or something, but uh, they were they, they needed to be taken away by your au pair, and uh, that uh, certainly had to heighten your concern about what was unfolding there.
1: Yeah, they were on Capitol Hill. They weren't at the Capitol itself, but they were on Capitol Hill nearby. Because at the time they weren't in school because of the pandemic. So they were in a learning pod with other children. And I purposely put them in a learning pod on Capitol Hill so they would be close to my work. But that morning, um, I recount in the book, I went up to the command center and I saw what was going on in the city, and I became, that's when I really became scared. And that's when I called my au pair, and I said, you need to come get the kids out of the city, like, now. And I remember she was, like, getting ready to go out for lunch or something. She's like, can I do it after? And I was like, no, you have to come now. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, okay. And so she did. And uh, she was from Brazil, and so I think she had a healthy appreciation of, you know, protests and anti-government protests and what have you, and so she said when she arrived, because this learning pod was in like an office building, it wasn't in a school, but when she arrived, she saw protesters on the street, like walking towards the Capitol, and she became really scared, and so um, she she was happy to get the kids out and happy to get out of the city herself.
0: Mm. Well, we can read your book to find out still more details about what actually unfolded on January 6th and, of course, its aftermath and the extensive investigations into what took place uh, and why. Um, What was it like to continue on with the Capitol Police? You you mentioned that you were with them until earlier this year, Uh, but I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to, in a sense, pick up the pieces in the wake of, of something so catastrophic.
1: I had a feel you know, I felt like I had an obligation to make things better and clean it up especially in light of what happened on January 6th and it, so it, that's what I did and you know I had a, there was a director of intelligence and he left shortly after January 6th so I really was there alone trying to pick up the pieces and and I did and it was hard it was really hard work um I ultimately ended up um Terminating six of the 11 analysts that I had, uh, hiring many, many other analysts, and they're fabulous, and they're great. And I'm happy that I left the Capitol Police Intelligence in a place where they have a viable intelligence division. We did make changes. The team is given the credibility it deserves now. It's producing good products. But it was a long haul, and it was a tough haul, but I was resolved to make sure that I left that team in a good place before I did leave.
0: Briefly, you make the the decision in, in your book to uh, tell the story of, of your relationship with Shane Lamond, former head of intelligence for D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department, who ultimately was arrested for tipping off uh, the founder of Proud Boys about investigations, uh, into his work and the fact that he was about to be arrested Uh, you could have very easily left that story out of this entirely I appreciate the fact that you didn't (laughs) Um, did you weigh that very heavily Uh, I mean and were you seriously tempted to just kind of leave that out of what is already a complex story or did you feel like that just had to be part of this
1: uh, I, I did think about it a lot and like, do I include it or not include it? I ultimately included it because, and why I felt like it needed to be in the book is that if I wanted to have any credibility or integrity, I needed to be open and honest about the mistakes that I made as well. I'm not perfect. There are definitely things that I would have done differently if I had to do everything over and my relationship with Shane being one of those things. Um, but you know, I, I, I think I had to put it in there and it had to be part of it. And also, you know, Shane, as you mentioned, was the head of int- intelligence for the D.C. police, the MPD, and I worked with him every single day. And so regardless of whether or not we had a personal relationship, he was part of that story. And, you know, it's unfortunate that I didn't realize then what I know now. And I think I would have made different choices if I had known that, but it is what it is, and it's important. If you're going to tell the story, tell the story, warts and all, because that's the truth. Hmm.
0: Your book ends with a number of recommendations that you make uh, in terms of of going forward from here and uh, trying to deal with uh, what is a, a still very, very serious threat to uh, our, our democracy and its well-being. Um how hopeful are you going forward that that we have learned the most valuable lessons from January 6th?
1: I'm hopeful that we have better days ahead of us. I don't think we have fully learned our lessons from January 6th, and I think that's going to take time. I don't think we have fully acknowledged what happened on January 6th, and I don't think we have started to heal yet as a nation on January 6th. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that we can learn from it and that we will eventually learn from it. I think time is on our side and time is on the side of truth. And as we put more time and distance between January 6th and what happened, I think we will start to realize like what a bad period of time that was in this country.
0: The book again is Domestic Darkness, an Insider's Account of the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism, published by IG Publishing, the author Julie Farnham. Julie Farnham, I thank you most profoundly, most sincerely for writing this really important book and for being my morning show guest. I was truly honored to speak with you. Thank you so much and best wishes.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.